Hi, Peter Bregman here. Before we get into this episode, I want to let you know that registration for a very special program, the Bregman Leadership Intensive, is now open. It's unlike any leadership program you've been to before. We don't talk about leadership in the intensive. We actually engage in experiences that bring out the best of who you can be as a leader. We uncover blind spots that you may have, and in it, you will learn how to get around those blind spots in order to remove the obstacles that prevent you from contributing your maximum potential. To apply and see if you're the right fit, visit bregmanpartners.com forward slash leadership. And you can learn more about the intensive there. We only have 20 spots open and we're filling up. So don't hesitate to apply now. That's bregmanpartners.com forward slash leadership to apply for the intensive today. That's it for now. Enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is Steven Rogelberg. He's a professor of organizational science, management, and psychology at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. And most recently, he has written the really excellent book, The Surprising Science of Meetings, How You Can Lead Your Team to Peak Performance. And uh, I'm just delighted to have uh, Steven on the show. Steven, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Steven, why do you study meetings? Well, you know, I'm an organizational psychologist, and I study the world of work from a people perspective. So in some regards, you could ask yourself, how could you not be studying meetings, right? When you think about how much time people are spending in meetings, how much frustration it seems to be engendering in, in individuals. So I saw it as a, an amazing opportunity to study something that is frequent um, on people's minds and ideally something that you could make better um, for so many individuals. So kind of on the one hand, people do seem to hate meetings. Like you hear that a lot. People talk about it a lot. On the other hand, there's a sense that people aren't connecting enough and they fall into misalignment and disconnection. So I'm kind of curious where the disconnect is. Sure. It's a great question. Um, basically, the People don't hate meetings in and of themselves. What they hate are bad meetings. What they hate is wasting time. Um, but meetings themselves are, I mean, a world without meetings is much more problematic, right? I mean, we need meetings for to you know, promote cooperation, coordination, communication, consensus decision-making. So we don't want to eliminate meetings. We, what we want to do is eliminate bad meetings. Get, get, build me a one-minute case for, you know, just how bad meetings really are. Well, um, it depends on what index that you want to use. If you think of it as what's causing people the most frustration, uh, meetings consistently emerges kind of at the top of the list. You know, what my research suggests is that a better way of thinking about it is that it's rare that an entire meeting is garbage. Um, that what I generally find is that around 50% of meeting time is not well spent. 
So typically people leave meetings and they say, okay, I picked up a few nuggets or I had this positive interaction, but it's just the ratio of like productive, constructive time to not so effective time, I think is a little bit out of whack. So what what creates the non-effective time in meetings? What's going on during that time that makes it so ineffective? Lots of different things could be going on. Um, what could be going on is that there's discussion of a, an agenda item that's just not important, um, not relevant to the person that's there. Um, what could be going on is that there's individuals who are you know, dominating, not listening to one another. Um, you know, there could just be a mismatch of um, the types of kind of the agendas with the people, the facilitation approaches. Um, there could be side conversations, tangents. There's a whole host of things that could be happening that make it not so good. It's interesting. And, and each of those things, as I'm listening to you, are in these different categories. Like one of them is structural. Another one is skill-based. Another one is just sort of culture or habit or how we, you know, like behavioral in a certain sense. Meetings, it's actually interesting because in some ways, and, and I, I didn't think about this particularly when I read your book, but, but, it, but it's like in this conversation, it's so clear to me, like meetings become the focal point for every element of dysfunction in the organization and in individuals to show up. Because everything else could be hidden. When you're in your desk, it could be hidden. But when you've got a group of people in a central location, and then you've got the dynamics, and then you've got the culture, and then you've got skill levels, and then the truth is to make a meeting relevant to everybody in that room is oftentimes a little hard because, you know, you're covering five different topics, and, and each topic, you know, like may relate to some people more than others. So it's a real challenge, actually. Yeah. I mean, so a couple things, like just to build on that. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is really meetings are the very windows into the essence of an organization. Uh, meetings are the display stages for leadership. I mean, you can learn so much about the leader and the organization just based on the meeting. And the other thing I wanted to say um, in relationship to what, what you mentioned, uh, where you, let's say you have a variety of people, everyone has their own needs. Um, it's impossible to have a meeting where 100% of the time is a good use of time. So it's certainly 50% is too low. So what is that sweet spot? And what I talk about with organizations that I um, connect with is you know, really shooting for 80, 85% of the time um, being like that good use of time. It's funny. I, I, I did an experiment for myself at some point, and I, um, I committed myself to never multitasking. So I, I would not be in a meeting and check my phone at the same time. And I find that there's certain elements, like there's certain habits that if you get into, like I, my tolerance for being in a meeting that was not engaging or useful, et cetera, you know, went way down because if I'm not going to allow myself to get distracted at points when I think I wasn't useful, then immediately my demand for, you know, a, a, a more effective meeting rose. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You were, you were expecting a greater return. Right on that investment of your time. So I've, done, I've been doing research on multitasking, and I think there's a lot of reasons why people multitask. I think, I think first and foremost, it's because people just have so much to do that they're fearful if they, they, they don't multitask, they'll fall behind. But meeting multitasking is also a symptom, right? It's a symptom of meeting dysfunction. It's a symptom of a non-compelling meeting. Um, and I think that multitasking is often a coping device. Right. So 
You've given up control. And if the meeting's bad, how do you get that control back? And then it, it's, it's sort of a downward spiral because once I start to multitask, then I'm disengaged from the meeting and I'm not going to contribute. And then it's going to get both less interesting to me and my whole reason for being there diminishes. So it's, you know, it, it, um, it spirals on itself. Well, and it's a, it can, it's a contaminant. So once people see others multitasking, they're much more likely to do it. I remember one of the first meetings that I ever led. I was working as a course director at Outward Bound. It was right after college. And I was totally prepared. It was like my first meeting. And I, you know, literally created little folders for everybody and, and, and created a really clear agenda. And I knew exactly what I wanted to get through. And I had places where they'd be involved. And I thought it went really well. But by the end, everybody was exhausted. And it was clear <laughs> that they thought it went really poorly. And mm. I'm curious, and you talk about this in your book, can you talk about self-inflation bias with regard to meetings? Yeah. So, um, well, I commend you for trying to be creative. Like, that's good. Um, yeah, it's interesting that when you survey people um, at the end of a meeting, there's one person that invariably says, hey, this was a really good experience, and it tends to be <laughs> that meeting leader. Um, so... You know, why does that self-inflation um, exist? So first of all, the meeting leader is in control. And when we're in control, that tends to help us um, feel, you know, we're empowered. Uh, so we're in control. We're talking a lot. Um, those are two nice ingredients for feeling good about an experience. Um, so, you know, I could be doing this, this video cast with you. And I, yeah, I think it's going great. But... Am I really the best judge, right? I mean, I'm doing all the talking. I like the sound of my voice. I'm like, yeah, this is really going well, but you don't really know. So, and this inflation bias exists with everything. Um, you know, if you ask people how good of a driver are you, like everyone's above average. Right. Um, so we see this in lots of contexts. It's just the human condition. And it's nothing to be ashamed of, but what it speaks to is just the need to check in every once in a while to see really, is it a blind spot? And, you know, then it's easy to do. So for example, you know, when I do these media interviews and they keep pushing me, well, what's the one piece of advice, one piece of advice? And it's hard because obviously my book has lots of pieces of advice, but if I had to say one major piece of advice is for that meeting leader to do some type of an assessment. You know, ask their folks who attend their meetings three questions. What's going well? What's going not so well? And what can I do better? Right? Just get voices, learn what people have to say, and make some positive changes. Um, that will take you a long way. All right. So for everybody who's listening to this, you know, you've gotten a straight up request from Stephen in the comments section of this podcast. You could point it towards Stephen. You could point it towards me, towards the podcast. What's going well? What's going poorly? And what was your third one? What could we do better? Right. All right. So, so feel free to shoot that out in the comment section. I promise you that we'll both read them. I can't promise <laughs> you Stephen will read them, but I promise you I'll read them. And if he doesn't, I'll send them to him. But I, I know him well Please. enough, at least from this conversation, that I know that he'll read them too. Sure. Stephen, conflict is very important to create in meetings, conflict around ideas. How yeah. can we promote conflict around ideas without also promoting conflict between people? That's great. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the best um, meetings do have conflict. Um, you know, conflict is really where greatness can emerge, right? When you have a group of individuals who are diverse, um, you hope that there's, you know, 
this these challenging of ideas and thoughts. Um, so there's lots of ways of promoting good constructive conflict. You can kind of establish a set of ground rules at the beginning, you know, where you encourage people to focus on ideas, not the person. Uh, but you can also design processes to promote it. So, for example, if I have people, um, for example, brainstorm. Um, and they brainstorm in silence. So they just take ideas and write them down or put them in, the, in an app, um, but it's all done anonymously. Well, the ideas that emerge from silent brainstorming, besides being that there's gonna be twice as many as comparison to verbal brainstorming, they're gonna be more innovative and they're gonna be more disruptive, right? Because people aren't filtering, right? They're bringing their full selves. So then once it's on the table, well, now it has to be discussed. So if there's differences of opinion emerging through this process, it's not going to feel personal, right? Because it's not attached to particular people. So there's just different ways. Um, another example is, you know, using uh, clicker technology, right? So if you put ideas, say, okay, here are four ideas we're considering and people vote using their phones, well, now people are going to be willing to disagree, perhaps, of the idea presented by the most powerful person, right? Because the process promoted it. So I'm really keen on trying to kind of structurally design a meeting so that good processes emerge. And I'm sort of curious because if you have a room full of people, you know, if you have a room of 10 people, and there is there are a couple of people who are organizationally more critical than the other eight, would you kind of want the meeting to be biased towards them in a certain sense? Like the, 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 you know, you, you kind of want everybody involved, but I wonder if it, if that process might sidestep or ignore a certain dynamic that leads to the success of outcomes of these kinds of meetings. Do you understand my question? It's a little. Yeah, I do. I mean, I guess the, the example that I'll use, um, in response is kind of an Amazon one. So um, when people are pitching ideas, they don't do it via PowerPoint. They write a memo, right? And these are like six page memos. And what the thinking was is that Bezos didn't want people to be influenced by the charisma of the speaker. They wanted ideas to be evaluated on their merits. And by having things written down, well, then it goes to the merits of the idea. And so when we are designing a meeting, we really want the quality of the ideas to gain the most influence, not just someone's personality. And, you know, if you're a great meeting leader and you've brought these folks together, um, I mean, that's your hope, right? So for these meetings to truly shine, you know, our job is to lift voices, bring dissent, and really allow kind of the the you know the things to be evaluated on their merits as opposed to all the contaminants. That's great. And in the end, the people who are more powerful in the organization ultimately will probably be in a position to be able to make the final decisions anyway. So, yeah. and if you don't yeah. want those other ideas in the meeting, then why are you holding the meeting? Exactly. Right. I love it. Thank you. Talk about people should meet for forty-eight minutes. I love that, by the way, because forty-five just feels too short to me. Um, does. And, and, you know, you also suggest 10 to 15 minute huddles. So you're trying to get rid of that 60 minute meeting. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, so, you know, where did this 60 minute meeting come from? Right. I Therapy. Mean, 
<laughs> therapy. Um, so, you know, 60-minute meetings, they're artifact of calendars and they're artifacts of, you know, Microsoft Outlook. And there's nothing magical about 60 minutes. So, you know, I, I had this chapter in my book saying meet for 48 minutes, but I don't literally mean meet for 48 minutes, but I want people to be intentional. I want people to actually think carefully about how long they should meet for, especially given that Parkinson's law exists. And Parkinson's law is this idea that work expands to what, fill whatever time is allotted to it. So if you schedule a meeting for an hour, it magically takes an hour. But we can use this to our advantage. If you schedule a meeting for 45 minutes, it's going to take 45 minutes. Right. And this is a great thing. You know, this is particularly a great thing because if we can back down meeting times, then we're giving people not only the gift of time, but we're also allowing intervals between meetings so that people have time to transition. People have time to check their phones, so maybe they'll be less likely to do it in the meeting itself. Yeah, I, I love what you're saying, and it, and it somewhat answers this next question that I had as I was reading the book, which is that you know, the extent to which all of these rules are particular to a culture, like an organizational culture or actually a, a national culture. And, I, and it came to mind that Alan Mulally, who you know, was the CEO of Ford and before that Boeing, he had like he was an incredibly effective leader. And and, you know, he would say he has said to me that a lot of his effectiveness as a leader comes down to these weekly two hour meetings that he had with lots of people in it. He violated mm -hmm. a lot of rules like he had two hour meetings. He had all of his direct he probably made 15 people who were running and then he invited other people who wanted to come and watch the meeting, could come and watch the meeting and sometimes be involved. And it was this incredibly structured process um, that ultimately he credits with turning around Ford. And it has to do mm -hmm. with people being accountable for you know, what their top projects are, et cetera. And so uh, it, what it left me with this question is, isn't a lot of like how we structure meetings based on who the leader is, what the culture is, the outcomes it's trying yeah. to achieve. And you're saying at least from your last answer in terms of timing, yes, like let's think about the outcome we want to achieve and, and, then, and then drive the meeting. Would you say that that's also true for all other aspects of meetings? Um, or are there some golden rules in a sense, which you said every meeting should abide by these five things? No, um, I don't. In fact, I mean, that's really one of the, I think, big differences with my book, um, because my book doesn't say, it doesn't present a magic formula. It doesn't say do A, then B, then C, then D. Um, each chapter is a very discreet kind of discussion, and it presents a variety of tools and techniques that I want leaders to be intentional about. I want them to pick the tools and techniques that make sense for them as individuals and make sense for their circumstance. And there's not a one best solution. But I think if you're intentional, your chances of being successful are much greater. So in this particular case, yeah, this the meetings are massive, but clearly this person, this leader is being very intentional. And that really matters. And interestingly, this intentionality is is a, almost a, a skill that so many leaders ignore. And so the best meeting leaders recognize that they are inherently a steward of others' time. And by recognizing you're a steward of others' time, you start making choices. You act intentionally. You think carefully about what needs to be done, who needs to be there, how long it needs to be, what are techniques that you could use. And interestingly, we have this intentionality every single time we meet with someone either much more powerful than us in an organization, or we meet with a customer. 
right? We never dial it in in those instances. We act intentionally. We really think carefully about it. But for whatever reason, when we're having meetings with our peers or direct reports, we take those skills and we shelf them. Right. And so anything we can do to build that intentionality, I think it's going to go a long way. So I listened to you and I think that a big part of this, and maybe this is the lens, the bias that I see things through because I've done a lot of work around emotional courage, right? the willingness to feel things, uh, which I think is at the root of the willingness to be able to do things. Um, and, and a lot of this, it seems to rely somewhat on the emotional courage of the team leader. You know, they should interrupt, they should keep things short, they should drive to outcomes. Um, they uh, should, you know, generally focus people in the meeting, even when it's a little hard to corral people. And we've all been in, I was, I was in a, a meeting which was a facilitated group. It doesn't really fit the definition of meeting. But, but the point of this drove me nuts. I was in this meeting. It was like a facilitated group. There was a rule that, you know, everybody should talk for two minutes. And the first person started talking, and they literally spoke for 30 minutes. 30 minutes. And nobody stopped them. And it wasn't my meeting. And, and also it was like it was the kind of group where I wasn't really in a position. It was – not to go too much into depth, but it was like a, a a group where we were discussing the idea of reparations and I'm like the white male in the room and like I'm not going to say, hey, stop talking. It's been 30 minutes and we committed to two. But it it takes a lot of courage for the facilitator at that point, or maybe it shouldn't, but it does, or whatever the facilitator didn't at that point say, hold on, like I appreciate what you're saying. It's really important and out of respect for this process and for the other people – you know, we've committed to two minutes. So how do you help leaders show up in this emotionally courageous, kind of risky way, in a way that kind of keeps the meetings focused, which supports everyone, but it's still kind of hard to do in the moment? So a leader could um, start their meeting saying, hey, I bought this great book, and I learned a lot of new things. Um, you're, not talking, give- you're not talking about leading with emotional courage. I'm, you're not talking about my <laughs> book, right? You're talking about the surprising science of meetings. I am, but it could be your book No, too. I think you should all buy the surprising science of meetings. I do think, actually, your point is really good, which is, which is to, to, I mean, I interrupted you, but to sort of jump in with, hey, we know a little bit about what makes an effective meeting. Right. Exactly. I mean, I just think that the leader, I mean, I, I actually was only half joking because I think a leader saying, you know, we have these meetings, we have lots of meetings, and we know that people are frustrated. And while I can't fix other people's meetings, I can fix my own, right? I can make, I can be the light, I can do meetings better. And I want to do what I can to make this the best possible use of time for all of us. So I'm going to try a few things. And then we'll look at it. And if it's not working, we'll stop doing it. But let's try, let's see if we can make these better and give it a go. And I think that's courageous, but I also think it builds a culture, right? It builds a culture where people are going to look at their stakeholders and say, okay, how can I treat them better? Um, How can I learn, reflect? How can I be the best person, the best leader I can be? I love that. And it seems to me, one of the things as I'm listening to you that feels important is if you set new guidelines for meetings, then 
don't lose the opportunity of redirecting the meeting the very first time it goes off. Because if someone, you know, if someone, if you're talking, if you say two minutes and someone talks for 15, then you have lost your ability the next time that happens to stop them. So it's like, once you set the rule, you gotta stick to it and it becomes easier once you set the new rule. That's right, I totally agree. And even just your willingness to reevaluate the rules periodically, right? right? Because- yeah. yeah. A set of rules that might work in the beginning might not work towards the end, and so we can make these more fluid. You talk about the importance of creating positivity at the beginning of the meeting, which I, 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 I like. I like that idea. But if people are generally upset or negative, isn't the leader's positivity discordant and likely to have maybe the opposite effect? Um, or, or am I just providing a, a, an excuse or recipe for continuing negativity? You know, so we know that meetings are often experienced similarly to how we psychologically experience interruptions. And interruptions tend to anger us and kind of put us in a bad state of mind. That's it. Hold on. Let's slow down because I think that's such an important point. And it's so interesting that the way we see meetings as in an, as is as an interruption to our work. And right. and already, like, you know, if you're assuming that you're in there as an interruption to the real important work that you need to do, it's like you're at the bottom of a hill to climb. Exactly. All right, sorry for interrupting, and but so, I just wanted to underscore that point because it's such an important point, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you. So basically, as a meeting leader, I want to help people bridge that. Sep I want to help make that separation easier. And so I know that people are coming into my meeting with this mindset. I know that they were doing something else. Um, so while I'm not trying to invalidate their negative negativity, and it might be relevant to the meeting, and if it is, I'm going to fully explore it. But the fact is, for the next eight, X number of minutes, something else is happening, right? We call this together to achieve X, Y, and Z. And while I can't address that other stuff at that moment, I still can make it so that your investment right now and this X number of minutes is done in an effective way. And so the positivity that I bring to it, and I don't mean some kind of fake Disney type of positivity, but me saying, thank you for coming. I'm really grateful that you're here. I appreciate you taking the time to be here um, and looking for other types of host behaviors saying, oh, actually, do you two know each other? Let me make an introduction. And basically me bringing some positiveness to this is only going to, um, I think, elevate the meeting. Because as you know better than most, I mean, emotions are contagious. And if I can build a meeting that has more positive emotionality, it's actually going to foster more creativity and it's going to foster more open-mindedness. And those are all things that will benefit the meeting. It's great. Conference calls can be insufferable, right? With sort of, especially if it's, you know, a conference call, not just a phone call, but a conference call and you ask a question and then there's silence on the line and, trying, and you offer a series of tips to make them better. Can you just throw out a couple of random tips that you think like, you know, if you do these three things already, it's going to have a big impact on making your conference calls better. Sure. So I have a whole chapter on this, as you know, and it's, it's an important topic because dysfunction in remote meetings is crazy high. Uh, so I'll give you a couple quick ones. Um, let me randomly uh, generated. Uh, so when at all possible, do video, um, get people, um, you know, not being anonymous. Um, when, it, if, you know, when impossible, uh, get people to come online five minutes earlier so all tech issues can be handled. And then 
here's your bonus that's going to be the one that's crazy controversial is consider banning the mute button. How are you going to know? So, well, you'll know because you won't hear the dog, you know, like you'll hear maybe some noise. But but I, I, I don't literally mean to ban it all the time, but I like the symbolism of that, right. right? When we meet in an organization, the expectation is that we will all be in that room focused. You've, of course, seen like, that video of like what would happen if an in-person meeting was like a conference call. Exactly, exactly. So I, I like the um, thinking of it as kind of metaphorically or, you know, just kind of symbolically that if you ban the mute button, then people have to be present. They have to commit to being in a quiet space. They have to commit to not having lunch. They have to commit to not walking their dog. You know, basically, just because the meeting is remote doesn't mean that you're a passive participant. Right. So while practically you can't always ban it, I just like the symbolism of saying it. Right. Great. All right. We're going to wrap up here. And here's my final question. And it's putting you on the spot. So uh, and and don't worry, because I've gotten a lot of emotional courage to hear it. But, you know, we've just had a meeting. It's an interview meeting. We've just had like it's you and me. And it's so I'm curious what you would do to make this kind of interview meeting more effective. Like how could I have used our time or our conversation? Or are there things that you saw me do that worked? But let me ask you the question that you were sort of asking the audience. What worked? What didn't work and what would you do differently? So I would say that this meeting was effective because you were intentional, right? You thought through the story in advance. You did your research, you did your preparation, you read the book. Um, so not only did you have kind of in mind how to honor my time, but you also had some flexibility to allow me to kind of go in some, some different directions. So you modeled intentionality. Um, so that takes us so far. In, in the path to success. You know, the, the only other thing you could have done, and I don't think, you know, your, your listeners don't know it, but you could have said, you know, perhaps sent me maybe an outline of topics that you wanted to talk about. So maybe I would be more prepared to cover certain things like, you know, this last question. Right. <laughs> um, just kidding. But, so, but that, that's very minor. And, um, and I really actually think in this little case study that we just did that intentionality is 80% of the battle. Agendas are not so much. You can have great meetings without agendas if the leader is highly intentional. Do you sometimes uh, come into these interviews and have the person not having read the book and kind of unprepared? There is definitely variability in um, host kind of preparation and quality. Um, yeah, it's you did a really good job. Um, it's not always the case. There's some I'm like, oh my gosh, what have I committed to? But I'm grateful for the experience. I'm grateful that so many people want to talk about the book. And so I'm, I'm having a lot of fun, but I definitely appreciate when the interview is well-constructed like this. So thank you. Well, thank you, Stephen. And what I would say is it's, it's to, to their loss if they're not reading this book and prepared for the interview because the book is an excellent book and it is not a hard read. And it is filled, like chock full filled of really great, incredible, practical advice for how to take you know, this thing that is an indelible part of our lives and very effectively and kind of simply make it, you know, a much more useful, much more productive use of our time and everyone else's time and show up as better leaders in our organizations because that's when we're on stage. When we're holding a meeting is when we're on stage as a leader. So it's like it's high leverage. It's high productivity. It makes a huge difference. And, and your book – the Surprising Science of Meetings, 
how you can lead your team to peak performance is incredibly uh, tactical and practical in allowing us to do that. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for uh, coming on to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. And I'm looking forward to our paths crossing a lot more in the future. Likewise. Thank you. Hi, Peter Bregman here again. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I want to remind you at the close that we are looking through applications now for the Bregman Leadership Intensive. I would love one of those applications to be you. Please go to the URL bregmanpartners.com forward slash leadership to learn more and apply for the intensive. It will really develop in an unimaginable way your emotional courage and impact your leadership and your life. Again, we cap it at 20 people, so don't hesitate to apply now. Hope you enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you again next week.